good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. 3CR Anzac Day will be with us very shortly, and I wanted to have a little chat about this great Australian institution. As the nightmare of the Great War subsided, the horrors of the peace replaced it. So many bore terrible physical and mental wounds, and the press called this the price of victory. Many others, of course, bore terrible economic wounds. There was a lot of anger. Quickly, diversions were created before this anger boiled over. So there was held out this hope of a land fit for heroes in which 9,000 in New South Wales alone were encouraged to go bush. These adventures took the form of special farming schemes for veterans. They were allotted small and marginal blocks of land. Now this catered to popular notions that life on farms was happy and healthy. It also appealed to workers' forlorn hopes of being their own boss. The authorities gave little heed to environmental dangers such as salinity. They were indifferent to the fate of the Aboriginal people already scratching a living on the fringes of these areas and now displaced again. But there was no way that anyone could ignore the financial crisis that soon afflicted many returned diggers. The veterans wrote angry and eloquent letters. Local authorities squawked that several of these amateur farmers displayed Bolshevik tendencies after the farmers had formed an association in New South Wales. Few settlers actually took radical steps, even when the government seized their cows. Some stayed and suffered. Some walked off the land. However, these soldier settlers went at it, These schemes couldn't contain the problems of a traumatised generation. Unionists resisted in Fremantle and Townsville. They drove out scabs in a mobilisation by much of the population of Fremantle, led by returned soldiers familiar with bayonets. One wharfie was killed, but police and scabs were driven out of the city. A series of riots involving returned soldiers and wharfies rocked Fremantle. A large crowd, several thousand strong, gathered between the Federal Hotel and the Post Office. Two constables were set upon in High Street. Armed officers who went to their aid were also attacked. In Townsville, during a bitter 1919 strike, 300 men appeared at the yards, armed with sticks and palings. They tore down the gates, drove the cattle out, cut up saddles and poisoned the drinking water. After the police arrested prominent union leaders, 
and when workers marched to the lockup demanding their release, the police opened fire. When several constables attempted to mingle with the crowd to note proceedings to take down names, they were mobbed and forced to take refuge in the bank. The police were forced to release union organiser Piers Carney. The Queensland government rushed police reinforcements to Townsville by rail to restore order. But from 1916, the seeds of another awful tradition were sprouting. An ideological way to promote war in the guise of helping servicemen. 25th of April was officially named Anzac Day. Australian troops marched in London and a sports day was held in the Australian camp in Egypt. In the Sydney march, vehicles carried wounded soldiers from Gallipoli, attended by nurses. It sounded benign, but seriously, listener, it reeked of evil. According to the Australian War Memorial, for the remaining years of the war, Anzac Day was used as an occasion for patriotic rallies and recruiting campaigns. In other words, to gather cannon fodder. The Australian Labour Party should have opposed this trend. After all, it claimed the mantle of anti-war party. Yet its political line contained deep contradictions, vacillating between defence and anti-militarism. The ALP aligned Brisbane Daily Standard declared Labour abhors war, but also insisted that war was a fact that must be faced and workers must be mobilised for it. It got worse. According to the West Australian Worker, the official organ of the West Australian ALP, it was supreme folly to talk of peace. Now, this hypocrisy resulted from the nationalism that replaced so much of its initial socialism. And for this, Labour bears a terrible responsibility. Indeed, Labour set the nationalist pace. Labour declared the day's official status and told of how the world marvelled at the men of Anzac. Now, based on this jingoistic stance, most Labour followers drifted into an uneasy but persistent relationship with the key ANZAC organisation, the RSL. Because the RSL had up to 150,000 members at the end of the war and around 80% of them were workers, Labour and unions couldn't afford to ignore it. Not that there was no opposition. Australian forces were dramatically affected by mass soldiers' revolts across Europe in 1918. The troops held meetings, then found ways to disrupt parades. More than a hundred were punished, but none launched measures comparable to the Fremantle and Townsville riots of 1919. Back in Australia, the communist paper Workers Weekly argued for workers to oppose the commemoration by attending May Day celebrations instead. It wrote, April 25th has become a day of imperial boasting and military boosting. On Anzac Day, capitalists, politicians and priests will don their silk hats and decorations and come out and chant about Anzac 
in order to build up a new military tradition in Australia, to get ready new ANZACs for recruiting, to prepare young Australians for another bloody massacre. Yeah, well said, but there were too few of those. Similar problems returned during the Second World War. The country's most celebrated anti-militarist, John Curtin, insisted, we are the Anzac breed. Our men stormed Gallipoli. They were the rats of Tobruk. Now here's the famed anti-conscriptionist implementing conscription. What we should do is consider the offensive foolishness of telling the world that the Anzacs fought for freedom when the Gallipoli fiasco was obviously an indefensible invasion of Turkey. Now when I was a young man I carried me pan And I lived the free life on the roller From the Murray's Green Basin to the dusty outback Oh, I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915 My country said, son It's time you stop rambling There's work to be done So they gave me a tin hat And they gave me a gun and they marched me away to the war And the band played waltzing Matilda As the ship pulled away from the quay And amidst all the cheers The flag waving in tears We sailed on for Gallipoli How well I remember that terrible day How our blood stained the sand and the water And of how in that hell that they called Sula Bay We were butchered like lambs at the slaughter Johnny Turk, he was waiting, he primed himself well. He showered us with bullets and he rained us with shell. And in five minutes flat, he'd blown us all to hell. Nearly blew us right back to Australia. But the band played waltzing Matilda When we stopped to bury our slain We buried ours And the Turks buried theirs And we started all over again And those that were left we tried to survive In that mad world of blood, death and fire And for ten weary weeks I kept myself 
faithful line Though around me the corpses piled higher Then a big Turkish shell knocked me off over the head And when I woke up in me hospital bed And saw what it had done Oh, I wished I was dead Never knew there was worse things than dying For I'll go no more waltzing Matilda All around the green bush far and free To home tent and pegs A man needs both legs No more waltzing Matilda for me So they gathered the crippled the wounded the maimed and they shipped us back home to Australia The armless the legless the blind the insane those proud wounded he And as our ship sang into circular key, I looked at the place where me legs used to be. And thank Christ there was nobody waiting for me to grieve, to mourn, or to pity. But the band played waltzing Matilda As they carried us down the gangway But nobody cheered They just stood and stared Then they turned their faces away And so now Every April I sit on me porch And I watch the parade pass before me I see my old comrades How proudly they march Reviving old dreams of past glories The old men march slowly Old bones stiff and sore The tired old heroes From a forgotten war And the young people ask What are they marching for? And I ask myself The same question But the band plays waltzing The old men still answer the call But as year follows year More old men disappear Someday no one will march there at all Waltzing Matilda Waltzing Matilda 
Now here's a word for you, listener, and Zachary. It's hyperbole and empty rhetoric. The Australian National Dictionary defines and Zachary as the promotion of the Anzac legend in ways that are perceived to be excessive or misguided. Anzac should be mostly private. It should be about the quiet, within family, remembrance of and caring about people who have suffered in war, those who have been killed and not come home, those who have come home injured in body or mind, and those who live with the memory of the dead and the reality of the living. Anzac is about both the forever young and those who grow old and their families. For most families, commemoration is not speeches by politicians, not parades and wreaths and children waving flags. Instead, it's something families live every day and every week, every month, forever and down through the generations. It's the reparations that families pay for the decisions that governments made to send men and women to war. And Zachary on the other hand, is very public. It is marches and flags and hymns and speeches. It's the remembrance of war moving from the personal to the public sphere, and with that, from a description of something unspeakable to something about which it can never say enough. This means projections of pictures of soldiers onto the walls of the Australian War Memorial, promotions for the rarest tank in the world, Battlefield tours, Gallipoli cruises and surfboat races, young people wrapping themselves in Australian flags at Anzac Cove, or getting drunk in the streets of Kamakali and shouting Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. And Zachary is also memorabilia and knickknacks, ministers and officials making emotional speeches to nostalgic audiences about the Anzac legend. And Zachary is sentiment and nostalgia, and it is nationalism, which some people mistake for patriotism, but it's really jingoism. And Zachary tries to make simplistic sense out of war and its effects, to comprehend things that are not really comprehensible. It plays to our emotions because we prefer not to think too deeply about war. After the First World War, the Great War, the war to end all wars, King George V had a king's penny, or dead man's penny, a commemorative medal presented to bereaved subjects. On the medal it said he died for freedom and honour. No need to question whether the death was worth it. Indeed, no need to question how worthless the death was. The king had provided the comforting answer. Three And it's time to hear from the bagman. 
Good morning, Bagman. Good morning, Susan, and good morning, listeners, or as you would say, g'day. Now, it won't be a popular opinion, but it will be honest, and we're coming up to Anzac Day, and we all know that war is a filthy, degrading, destructive business. Now, the raw but less than honest government media coverage of the invasion of Ukraine is to be less than applauded. However, it leaves a lot to be desired as opposed to previous invasions of Muslim countries. Now, you know, Susan, as a journalist, I reported on the wars in the Balkans during the 90s, experiencing many atrocities from both sides. There were mass killings, mass graves of men and women murdered and the wholesale destruction of property. Now, apparently, Russian leader Putin is without doubt a dictator. But is he any more a war criminal compared to our own government invading other countries with impunity? When similar atrocities were carried out by Allied forces in Afghanistan or Iraq, where was the sympathy and media coverage now afforded to Ukraine? If we invaded these countries and did not afford Muslims the same protections which simply allowed them to suffer those injustices in silence. As in Ukraine, Iraq and Afghanistan, hospitals, kindergartens and aged care facilities were targets of the Allied forces, whether intentional or not, leading to the deaths of thousands of women, men and children. Death and destruction resulted when atrocities committed by the Allied force were not being called out as war crimes, our government and the Western media let those people down. Now we have a call for Putin to be charged with war crimes. Now I say, Susan, I say fair enough. If that's the case, then Bush, Blair and our own John Howard should be offered the same treatment. Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice lied to the United Nations, stating that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And they even went as far as to lie that Iraq had a mobile truck ready to inflict chemical weapons, not on the Allied forces, but on their own people. The United Nations weapon inspectors found that Iraq had no such weapons. The eyes lied now, it's a well-known fact that according to the International Panel of Jurists from the United Nations, condemned the invasion as illegal. The Allies disregarded their advice. And they invaded anyway. The invasion of Afghanistan was a simple and cynical act of vengeance for 9-11. Now, Muslims at a time were perceived as terrorists by the media and the Allies as, terror as terrorists had not afforded 
any sympathy or any form of justice. The Western media assumed that Muslims were not worthy of the same and not open coverage now being afforded to Ukrainians. It's a simple fact, and you should remember this. War is a place where young men and women who don't know each other kill each other but don't hate each other by decisions of old white men who hate each other but don't kill each other. I'm putting on the old cynical, bitter and twisted outfit only because I've been lied to so often in the real world in future. Can leaders of Muslim countries be afforded a parliamentary appearance before their countries are invaded, or at least a plea to the United Nations, or lo and behold, an appearance at the Academy Awards? There will be those that argue that these countries were run by less than democratic men. Well, I'm up for that, but I've got to, I'm reminded that Ukraine is a Christian country. Maybe that's the difference. Now, Susan, I'm reminded that that uh, great old saying, remember kids when you're smashing the state, have a smile on your lips and a song in your heart. And my mind goes back to last year when young students were taking over the streets in Melbourne and all over the world uh, in defence of the, uh, the damage being done to the environment by politicians that don't really care. Now, I say to those students, don't be deterred by the media minions who will tell you that you won't do your cause any good. There's people on war radio like Neil Mitchell and the whacker from Files, uh, Alan Jones, because they have never had the courage to fight for what students and workers have achieved. You're fighting for your future, and students have always been at the vanguard of every revolution. Now, Susan, before I go, and we have an important re uh, referendum coming up soon to say yes to the changes in the Constitution, and I say, I stand with the indigenous people of this nation. I stand with innocent Muslims killed in wars. I stand with any people oppressed for their culture. I stand with people of colour who have come to this country. I stand with every fair-thinking Australian. I stand with every person that believes in a fair game for people that come to this country for a better life. I stand as an Australian, proud of the contribution migrants have made to our nation. Yep, I'm a proud Australian, embracing different cultures, religions and lifestyles. You know, Susan, I live in a multicultural neighbourhood, probably the most multicultural neighbourhood in the world. I live in Coburg and I feel completely safe. I live in harmony with those around me without threat imposed 
by the media and politicians. The difference is, I continue to make my own decisions about how I treat my fellow Australians, including those seeking refuge from wars we have inflicted them upon them. Now I come from Broadie and my working class principles would not allow me to abandon fellow humans, especially women and children and the victims of war imposed on them. I stand proud and ready to join any resistance and I say yes to the voice. On that basis, Susan, it's uh, let's go out in the same old way. And after 36 years, there's sometimes when I don't get this right all the time. But let's go out in the same old way. Let's dare to struggle, dare to win. If you're not fighting, you're losing. Good morning from Left After Breakfast.